Today on Ag News Daily. Most of the Western Corn Belt is looking better than the Eastern Corn Belt on the whole. There's certainly pockets like there around I-80 and Nebraska near, you know, Lincoln and Omaha and, you know, back toward the central part of the state that was quite dry. Listeners, Friday, looking at June 16th, 2023. Here to have a great wrap-up episode for you today. Delaney, I'm excited for the guests this after, after the news. I am as well, Tanner. I almost said this afternoon, but that uh, is not accurate at all, because here we are recording before markets open. we got some fresh news, starting with the weather. Air quality is expected to be low again in Minnesota and the eastern half of Iowa, thanks to the Canadian wildfires. This will likely cause problems to sensitive groups that have any type of allergy or lung disease that causes difficulty breathing. Flood watches are still being issued for key parts of Oklahoma and Texas, but now we include Eastern Colorado and Kansas. Storms have been moving very slowly across the front range of Colorado and heavy rain is still in the forecast. Unfortunately, our friends down in Texas had some of their neighbors get their cities destroyed and nearly 300,000 people are without power this morning. More than 50 million people across a large swath of the United States from Texas to Florida are in the path of deadly, potentially deadly storms. Unfortunately, yesterday, three people were killed in Perrytown, Texas, when a tornado went through. The fire chief stated that there's an extra 100 people that were sent to the hospital for injuries ranging from head wounds to abrasions. And another person in Florida was trapped underneath a tree when it fell on their home in Escambia County. The County that has Pensacola in it uh, is hit with flash flooding emergencies. And the biggest thing, Delaney, is now we still have more weather heading their way. We did not get a derecho, but there was still level two to level five risk of severe storms that went through. And there will be continued lookout for weather today through 7 p.m. this evening. Yesterday, we got the latest drought monitor as of this week percent of corn and soy and sorghum in drought and drought conditions was pretty significant total corn acres in the u.s attribute about 57 percent of total acres in conditions of drought 51 percent of all u.s soybean acres in drought and 64 percent of sorghum continues to be in drought across the country as we're continuing to see drought creep into the Corn Belt with Iowa and Illinois, seeing some of the biggest jumps in moderate and severe drought categories, Tanner. But as these dry conditions expand, it's also going to start taking a toll on crop conditions. So we may see some impact to that on next week's crop conditions report. But we're going to be chatting weather with Eric Snodgrass coming up here on the podcast about what's ahead for the growing season. So do stay tuned. Wow, way to ruin that surprise. But no, we are. No, it was a surprise. I missed the memo. Yeah, it probably wasn't. Uh, it's probably also in the title of the episode. But yes, the uh, that's the conversation we're looking forward to. Eric's always a fun chat. We do have news coming out of the Pacific Maritime Association and International Longshore Warehouse Union. They've announced a tentative agreement, and they may look at a six-year labor contract. The agreement brings the end to a year-long labor negotiation that has recently turned contentious 
the biggest uh, parties in favor of this tentative agreement is the U.S. Meat Export Federation or U.S. MEF. The work stoppages have slowed cargo movement and effectively shut down some container terminals. Negotiations hit a disruptive low starting June 2nd, which drew the attention of the National Pork Producers Council. They reported extreme delays on Monday. Both parties have looked to expedite the process in which ratification can take place, but President and CEO of USMEF states tentative agreement that has been reached is of paramount importance to the pork and beef industries as the chilled business, which is a value add, includes pork and beef's highest value business when heading off the West Coast to Asian markets such as Japan, Korea, Taiwan, and China. Exporters and importers in these countries rely upon certainty and stability in terms of shipping logistics as these are perishable products. We're not surprised by this, Delaney, but the biggest thing is we could be weeks out from the ratification. Typically takes six to eight weeks, but maybe an accelerated process could have it done in the next couple. So uh, it looks like the joint statement made by both unions is that we are pleased to turn our full attention back onto the operation of our West Coast ports with the success of this temporary agreement. So good news. Well, Tanner, speaking of uh, some legislation here, in response to California's Prop 12, Senator Roger Marshall of Kansas introduced some new legislation into Congress on Thursday. The Ending Agricultural Trade Suppression Act, otherwise known as EATS, um, aims to prevent farms from enacting laws that impact agricultural production in other states. The law has attracted some co-sponsors, including Republican Senators Chuck Grassley, Joni Ernst, John Cornyn, Tom Cotton, Deb Fisher, Kevin Kramer, Eric Schmidt, and Ted Budd. But in response to Prop 12, Senator Marshall said that it's already tough enough to get product outside of the U.S.'s border, and we're constantly faced with non-tariff barriers from protectionist countries hurting American agriculture. He said the last thing we need right now is a big state like California imposing its will on ag-heavy states like Kansas with regulations that will also restrict our ability to trade amongst the states. The bill will have a companion measure introduced in the House at a later date by Representative Ashley Hinson of Iowa. But it's going to be interesting, Tanner, to see how this thing trickles through Congress and if it'll gain any headway. I think trickle through is the proper terminology. (laughs) I don't see it moving very quickly. Bayer, though, moved very quickly to settle allegations in the state of New York around their Roundup product. They agreed to pay $6.9 million in fines and removing various claims for advertising within the state. The settlement announced by the New York Attorney General states that a variety of studies purport that the product is dangerous to wildlife and claims that Bayer had stated the herbicide was safe. Those studies point to alleged harm to bee populations and other animal species with the use of Roundup on lawns and gardens. Although Bayer has stated that they will begin removing uh, glyphosate as the base for their Roundup products for lawn and garden use, those products on the shelves still intend to use the active ingredient and are, according to Bayer, still safe on nature. We're pleased, says Bayer, to resolve this matter 
which focuses on advertising practices and made no findings regarding the safety of animals due to our Roundup products. That was the press release coming from Bayer. As an assurance of these processes, we will continue to look at the conclusion of the case and remove all false potential advertising within the state. Therefore, our product can still be used safely by all of our customers. So it looks like more of a technicality, Delaney, but still nonetheless, a $6.9 million fine. Well, Tanner, speaking of other big numbers, JBS has announced the sale of the world's largest cattle feeding operation, Five Rivers Cattle Feeding, to one of their affiliate business partners, Pinnacle Asset Management LP, in a sale valued at approximately $200 million. JBS has been shopping around for a buyer for Five Rivers Cattle Feeding since last summer after JBS Brazilian ownership got caught in a political and bribery scandal in Brazil, which is a broken record too in there, Tanner. But after turning JBS into a local, or excuse me, a global meat empire, Wesley and Hosley Batista were tried to a Tie, excuse me, tied to a bribery scandal that included the president of Brazil. So they're trying to uh, dissolve of some of their business entities, probably Tanner, I'm just guessing here, but to pay for some of the fines that they likely encountered with some of those fines that they faced and legislation or uh, and trial that they faced there. But Five Rivers Cattle Feeding has capacity to feed more than 900,000 cattle in 11 feed yards across Arizona, Colorado, Idaho, Kansas, Oklahoma, and Texas. And so Pinnacle will be taking over feeding operations, according to a news release from the two companies, and will employ about 600 people domestically. Oh, there you go. That's big news, big dollars. Just like you said, last headlines I've got are coming out of Russia. First of all, Russian foreign deputy minister has stated that Russia and the United States have been in direct contact in the last week over a new START nuclear arms treaty. The state news reported on Thursday. President Vladimir Putin said in February that Russia was suspending its participation in the treaty and the last remaining pact between the two countries to limit the size of nuclear arsenals, but discussions have come back to the surface as of late. Russia launched massive combined airstrikes on Kiev shortly before midday there. Two people were injured, according to the prosecutor general's office. The city of Kiev has reported no casualties so far. The city officials stated that their air defense system downed 12 Russian missiles, including six hypersonic missiles. African Peace Mission will take place next week. The uh, visit of the African Peace Mission will head to Ukraine first. The heads of state will start off by visiting Kiev on Friday and then Moscow on Saturday to discuss a peace initiative between the Russian and Ukraine forces. Of course, their main focus is the Black Sea grain deal, which has threatened African food security. Ukrainian officials have slammed the timing of Russia's missile strikes due to the expected arrival of the African heads of state. But Putin continues to act without care, is the headline coming out of Ukraine. The Kremlin is going to use unprecedented security measures for the economic forum that will be at St. Petersburg next week, where Putin will be speaking on Friday. I apologize this week. It comes after several drone strikes from 
uh, rebel forces have taken place within Russia, including on Ma Moscow. So the extra level of security will be there. Germany will continue to send missiles. They stated they will send them immediately and deliver 64 Patriot missiles to Kiev. Joint observations and under their NATO allies, continuing to bolster Ukraine's air defenses. German defense minister announced new deliveries will arrive on Friday, the second day of the NATO meeting in Brussels. So that's the latest coming out of Russia in Ukraine. But that's what I've got for news on this Friday episode. Well, Tanner, on the flip side of this news, you know, we haven't really seen a lot of response coming from Africa in regard to the Russian-Ukraine situation, even though they've been one of the largest areas to be impacted by this ongoing conflict. We received word that key African states have stressed the need for grain imports to tackle food insecurity that a lot of countries in Africa continue to face. After Putin threatening earlier this week that he was considering withdrawing altogether from the deal after July 17th, uh, this caused a delegation of African leaders to plan a visit to both Ukraine and Russia this weekend in a push to end the 16-month-long war, as Putin said he has plans to use the occasion to raise the matter. But South African president, as well as quite a few other African delegates, will be visiting Russia and Ukraine this weekend, and we'll see if they have any sort of an impact here on Putin's plans moving forward, Tanner. Yeah, it's. Uh, I don't know if anybody knows if they can have an impact on Putin's plans, but thanks for sharing that. It looks like a little bit of weather, whether it's in Europe or in the United States, might be driving a bullish open to the corn, but how do markets look? It certainly is driving a bullish open here, Tanner. As we head into the opening session here, the Southwest Corn Belt is forecast to receive a little bit of rains over the next couple of days, while Wyoming and Colorado are dealing with flooded or excuse me flood watches but regardless here we're probably going to see dry weather in much of the corn belt july corn today opening nine and a half cents higher at 632 and three quarters dece new crop corn added 11 and three quarters cents in the overnight will open at 586 and a quarter in the soybean pits, the August contract added 22 and a half cents will open at 1391 new crop beans up 24 and a half cents in the overnight will open at 1317. In the hard rod winter wheat contract here today at the mid at the morning opening session, almost at midday there, September up 18 and a quarter cent at 827. In livestock here today as we wrap up our trading session for the week, August live cattle added 10 cents yesterday will open at a buck 7107 and a half today. August feeder cattle shed a dollar 77 and a half to open at 234.12 and August lean hogs will open 62 and a half cents higher at 90.30. Tanner, we are talking weather today with Eric Snodgrass. So let's turn over to that conversation. Well, folks, we are chatting about the El Nino weather pattern that is now developing in much of the continental United States today with Eric Snodgrass, Science Fellow for Nutrient Ag Solutions, a very familiar voice to the podcast. Eric, thanks for coming back on again. We appreciate your insight. Yeah, you bet. So, Eric, we're reading a lot of headlines this week saying we are officially now in an El Nino weather pattern. What does that mean or what indication tells us that we are officially in that pattern now? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it has to do with ocean temperatures, and the other piece of it has to do with the way the trade winds are behaving and also how the jet streams are responding. So 
for many of us that kind of watch this stuff every single day, we've watched this El Nino develop pretty rapidly. I mean, just this past week, the ocean temperatures right in the middle part of the equatorial Pacific hit a full degree Celsius above average. And that may not sound like much, but for ocean temperatures, that's a huge swing. You know, the strongest El Ninos we've ever had have only been three degrees above average. So we're kind of a third of the way toward the strongest, right? And it just began. But the other big piece of this is we're starting to see the Pacific Ocean trade winds respond. We're starting, which means they're actually kind of slowing down and they're even at times going toward the uh, toward the east. And the big thing that we have to watch is will we get the subtropical component of the jet to race across Mexico, race north of Texas, and start to give us better chances of having storms in the midsection of the country. It would also really help if the flow would split over the Western United States for those of us in the Corn Belt to return just routine storms. We haven't had that at all uh, this year. Yeah. So first off, when you said three degrees above average is a strongest El Nino, what does strength of El Nino mean? Great question. So when we're talking about the strength of an El Nino, it's largely based on the control of the trade wind pattern. So if you remember the trade winds run right along the equator from South America over to uh, like Indonesia and Australia, they're also in the Atlantic Ocean and the Indian Ocean as well, but we're focused on the Pacific. Okay, when those trade winds are really, really strong, we have a lot of cold water and a La Nina. When they're weak or when they stop or reverse, we have an El Nino. So what happens is all that warm water that gets pushed over toward Indonesia comes sloshing back and it just affects and, and, and kind of redistributes the temperature and precipitation patterns. And normally when that occurs, the Midwestern United States, the plains of the United States tend to get a lot of stormy activity in late June, July, and August. And so that's that's what we're waiting on. And the stronger the El Nino becomes, the, the weaker the trade winds are, the better the momentum is in the jet that comes across the United States. So Eric, we've been obviously reporting on a lot of the different weather patterns that have happened here across the United States, but one that's really stuck out to me was the extreme flooding that happened in Texas a few weeks ago. What Was there any weather event in particular or thing that we can point to that says this was the cause of that extreme event? Yeah, I mean, if we just look at the bigger picture, we have had for a long time a great big trough of low pressure sitting over the eastern United States. So if you can just imagine, that just kind of pushes the flow of the atmosphere down into the south and into the southern plains. And at times, while that sat over the east, there's been a massive ridge that's in the middle part of Canada. That's why all these Canadian wildfires have been going. So you start to stitch all this together, and what you get is flow that's been anomalously out of the east. It's been racing across you know, the United States, and it hits the, the high plains and runs up and blows up these huge storms. And some of them have produced massive hail. They've produced rain after rain after rain, taking this area from what was once the worst drought uh, over 18 year, uh, excuse me, an 18 month time period. And now it's got it as, as, as been one of the wettest 35 day stretches in, in the history of the state. So it's been a terrible situation in a lot of flooded areas. So they went from one extreme to the other. You mentioned wildfires, which led into the next question that I was going to ask. Is that something we're going to see more frequently during an El Nino pattern? Or is this just by chance with the Canadian wildfires? It's just the kind of uniqueness of, of this year. What happened was, is that the atmosphere back in May lost all of its momentum, which means the jet stream just slowed down and bunched up. And it went into what we call the triple ridge pattern. So there was a ridge over the Aleutian Islands. There was a ridge that meandered back and forth across the Canadian prairie from British Columbia all the way to Ontario and Quebec. 
And then there was a ridge that went over the UK. I mean, that ridge over the UK last weekend was what caused all those uh, during that military parade, all those uh, like that trombone player to faint. It was so hot in the UK. Well, that ridge that's over the UK is normally over Bermuda. It's normally pumping the moisture and it's normally delivering storms. And instead, we were just very stagnant, and the stagnant pattern led to, you know, a lack of, of good flow. It brought in the heat, things were dry, fires were ignited, and then they just really smoked out so much of eastern and western Canada, and at times, large sections of the United States. So you ask if it was the norm or if it's a fluke. Well, to be honest, it was, it was a fluke of this year, if that's the way we want to think of it. Because normally if El Nino is in control, all of that heat is in the Western United States and it's not been there at all. In fact, California is way behind on accumulating heat units so far this year. Which actually seems a little surprising, Eric. Yeah, it does. But, um, you know, it, it, it is what it is. We just keep seeing the, the jet stream dip over the West. And if you can't bring in those 90 to 100 degree days into the Central Valley, they're behind. They're just behind on heat units. They're behind about a week on the accumulation of GDDs. But up until this point, so was Texas. So was the Southeast all the way up to North Carolina. All of the heat was under the ridge where we sit in the Midwest and where we sit in the Northern Plains, where some places there are up to three weeks ahead of normal on the accumulation of heat units at this point in June. So Eric, as we look at this growing season now, I think that's a good segue to talking about what's ahead here for the Corn Belt, Eastern and Western, as far as the growing season for our main commodities. Yeah, most of the Western Corn Belt is looking better than the Eastern Corn Belt on the whole. There's certainly pockets like there around I-80 and Nebraska near, you know, Lincoln and Omaha and, you know, back toward the central part of the state that was quite dry. Uh, the weekend, last weekend, brought rains to Indiana, parts of Illinois, and it soaked Ohio early this week. So there's a lot of happy people there. But the big problem is kind of from central Illinois up toward the Quad Cities, you know, between Illinois and, uh, and Iowa, most of Iowa, a big chunk of, of Minnesota, and getting into southern Wisconsin. Those are all areas that have missed out on a lot of these rains. Now, the heavier soils, they're still doing okay. I did some soil moisture checks the other day on some fields that have only measured about two tenths of an inch of rain in the last 30 days. And you get down there and they're still there. I could flatten that soil out into a pancake down there at about eight inches. But if you have lighter soil, the moisture is gone and they're really starting to show problems. So you say, where is it going? It just seems like the market is trading every new model update. We're watching here for rains potentially to hit those dry areas this weekend, but the newest model runs aren't that generous on the rains in parts of Iowa and Illinois. And so we just continue to sit here and wonder when is the pattern going to shift away to give us those normal El Nino thunderstorms because it sure feels like they're late right now. Yeah, staring out my office window, I'm looking at a brown yard and uh, customers that stated when they sat in my office earlier were talking about corn really rooting down to try and get to the moisture. So sitting in that one of those dry pockets itself. How about looking clear out to potential harvest conditions for our listeners? We're talking maybe Midwest Corn Belt. What does an El Nino pattern have to give a little bit of a prediction towards what harvest is going to look like? Well, we tend to have storms late. That's That seems to be the issue. Typically, an El Nino tends to give us those September and even early October thunderstorms. But uh, I'll be honest, you're the first person that's asking me about harvest so far this year. Most most people are like, just tell me tomorrow. Tell me if I'm going to get it tomorrow. <laughs> And you're right. It's because we're sitting in that area where the, um, you know, where the risk is highest. And uh, my goodness, you know, if I'll just tell you this: if we do break over into a stormier pattern to finish June, and there's good storms in July, and we avoid the heat, which, to be honest, 
We've avoided the long duration kind of really hot temperatures so far. Well, if that continues, we may not have to worry too much about being you know, really far off trend with these yields. But if we keep missing like we've been missing in these key states, even those heavier soils run out of their water pretty soon. And all of a sudden now we get into this mode where we have to start assessing how much damage was done, what could be made up with you know, later season moisture. But you, know, you have to start asking, is it possible to hit some of these bigger numbers we've been hearing about? Eric, are there any other major weather markets or reports that you're watching right now? Yeah, I mean, quick trip around the world. Southern Europe from Spain all the way over to Turkey has been incredibly wet and stormy. Uh, they've even had some bigger storms in Northern Europe. So I don't see any major drought issues in Europe, even though Spain was under massive drought back in, in, in April. Around Ukraine, half of Ukraine is dry. So is that part of the Russian wheat belt, but we have good moisture on the Western side of Ukraine. In China, there are some very dry conditions in the Manchurian Plain and the North China Plain. That's where they grow a lot of corn and soybeans, which means if the rains don't return there, we could start to see some stress. And uh, outside of that, there was some a lot of late season rain on the tail end of the safrina crop in southern Brazil, although now it's getting quite cold and we're worried about some patchy frost. I'm not sure that'll do a lot of damage given that it's you know June, mid-June here, but it's something to be watching and, and, and keeping an eye on as we go forward. Eric, it's always been a pleasure to have a conversation with you. I know you're a very valuable resource to the ag industry, but if our listeners haven't followed you, what's the best way for them to connect with you? Yeah, you know, a great way to get started is just to head over to our YouTube page. I produce content every day that goes out on our YouTube page. If you just go to YouTube and search uh, Nutrient Ag Solutions Weather, you'll find it. And uh, that'll be a good way to kind of get you hooked up there with uh, some of the content I deliver. Well, thanks again. We really appreciate you hanging out with us on the episode today. Yeah, you bet. Well, Lenny, today here in Iowa, it looks like it will be sunny and 75 as the song goes. Maybe a little warmer than that, but a true good summer day here on Friday. Listeners, thanks for hanging out with us all week. Just a reminder, markets are closed on Monday, so Delaney and I will be back on Tuesday, correct, Delaney? That's right, Tanner. We'll see everyone on Tuesday, but with that, should we let the people go? Let's let them go. 